This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Extra with me, Geraldine Doog. Delighted to have your company each week. We bring you the best of Saturday Extra so that you can hear particularly the last hour of our show, which always has a range of interviews, big and small. And uh, I hope you enjoy this collection of our best of Saturday Extra. Now, a little bit later on this hour, the pick, uh, some terrific suggestions about what you might like to read, take your mind off things. Uh, and also a new, uh, some new thinking about where that Chinese nationalist narrative that we do hear a lot of, when it arose, we'll, we'll hear Bill Hayden's uh, take on this. As one of the many dimensions of the COVID crisis, I'm sure many of us have been wondering what will happen to all the office space in the CBDs around the country, because we certainly know not as many people are going to the office to work now. And it's Frankly, they're vastly different places in some parts of the country, not all. There are plenty of predictions that having sorted out how to work from home, people might never return to the same extent and employers in a recession will be keen to save on their real estate costs as well. There are other trends and ideas bubbling around too, and I do mean that, and it might be that our city centres really will change significantly. Jennifer Saiz is the Commonwealth Bank of Australia's Executive General Manager of Group Property and Security, and Phil Windus is a partner at Deloitte. He's a Brisbane-based corporate real estate advisor who works with the public and private sectors on large-scale real estate projects throughout the Asia-Pacific, so both very much hands-on people. Welcome to you both. Well, thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, yeah, thank you. And look, I know that before we get to property, you both just happen to be American. Although I know, Jennifer, you've been here a long time. How are you feeling? Can I ask you just at the top about what's happening in your home country? And I wonder how your friends and family back home are feeling. Jennifer, to you first. Um, you know, it's been a, a very stressful couple of, of days. And, you know, certainly my friends and family and myself are looking for resolution and a way forward for, you know, our country. So they're a bit exhausted sort of thing and they would like... Oh, very much so. No one's sleeping at the moment. Oh, dear. And Phil, what about you? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that, um, you know, friends and family that I'm connecting with are, are all seeming to rally around a, a desire for stability, you know, just some sort of an end um, mm. or at least uh, knowledge that an end is near. It's just, just so interesting to to ponder. So look, let's get to why you're both here on real estate and whether we are about to see big changes that we have only thought about in theory. On city real estate, Phil, I think you say we're about to see a tsunami of office space come onto the market. That's exactly right. Um, I think across most capital cities, we're certainly seeing large amounts of space being taken back to the market. That's not being helped also, of course, by new developments that are also due to complete over the next few years. So we already had issues, did we, with vacancy rates? We're about to have more. Is that a fair summation? Yeah, look, I think that um, by and large, in I'll call out Sydney and Melbourne, there were markets that were relatively favouring landlords over the last few years and probably starting to move away from that position. But as tenant demand for office space in cities has started to subside, 
we're, we're certainly seeing vacancy rates, I won't say inch forward, but lurch forward with a huge underswell of, of sublease space in both markets expected to really come into line over the next 12 to 18 months. Uh, and so just explain sublease space. What do you, what, what do you mean by that? Sure. It's space offered for lease by a company uh, as opposed to directly by a landlord. So it might be the underused floor in an office building that uh, a a tenant currently has a lease over but is yet to expire. Right. And there's also refurbishment of older buildings underway, isn't there? Exactly right, which again is is great from a selection uh, and choice perspective, but again, uh, probably uh, not too great for the landlord community. I mean, can you put a figure on it? Is it so that listeners understand in, you know, and and you'd have to nominate which city, of course, you're talking about, I suppose. Sure, absolutely. Look, um, in in really high-level figures, Sydney has about 5 million square metres of office space. There's currently about 440,000 square meters of space that's vacant, and that includes space that's directly vacant and for lease by landlords, as well as, we'll say, about 160,000 square meters of space that's currently on offer um, from other corporates via sublease. We're seeing about 160,000 square meters of additional space uh, that will be completed in buildings that is not yet leased coming into the market over the next few years. So about 600,000 square metres of space in two years' time available, assuming no further changes. And if you divide that by an average floor size of about 1,000 square metres, that's 600 floors that need to be leased My in Sydney. My goodness. My goodness. Really, that's a flood, isn't it? it, it again, it'll, it'll provide choice for those that are, are in the market looking for space. And is this the same in all Australian cities, would you say? Not all have been affected by COVID the same way. That's right. It it certainly is. Um, Melbourne and Brisbane have similar levels of vacant space, uh, albeit Brisbane is a much smaller market. Melbourne, we're we're still seeing only very early signs of subleasing space. I think, to be honest, unfortunately in Victoria, there have been some far more pressing matters to deal with. Um, But we are expecting that as corporates start to come back into the office, uh, there will certainly be um, an additional wave of subleasing space offered. And surely then it must get cheaper. Uh, we are expecting that rents will fall. Um, probably not the rents that are actually listed on the leases, but the incentives that are often offered by landlords to that might either go to, go to a contribution of, of fit-out costs or could be a, an underlying sort of rent-free period. Th- those are definitely starting to increase. Mm. Uh, uh, Jennifer, what's your reading of the, of the situation? Do you agree there will be this sort of vacant space? I mean, I think the the level of vacancy will certainly increase over time. Uh, you know, what we're experiencing, even just with a, with our own people, is you know this shift to flexible working. This experience has highlighted to our people that they, in fact, want to be working from home more in the future. And so, you know, we've surveyed our people and one of the survey results was that 76% of our people prefer to work in the office three days or less. So that's only 20, you know, 25% of our people that want to be coming into our office more frequently than three days a week. That's a significant shift Mm -hmm. in terms of how we were previously operating. And so that certainly is going to have ramifications in terms of office and office demand going forward. And like Phil said, you know, we're starting to see that in the sublease market, you know, where tenants have longer lease expiries and they're trying to give up some space. And I think that the surprising thing is, is that people are reacting to the pandemic already. 
they're not waiting to see post-pandemic how are they going to respond. And so other organizations are making big calls now about the future of work. And, you know, the property market might be resistant to that, but certainly what people are saying is that this is a great opportunity in terms of changing the way that people are working. So there are big, uh, would it be fair to say then, just based on what you're both saying, there are big decisions about office space and about the nature of the people, how they'll work in those places. They're being made right now, aren't they? Yeah, it seems like, you know, with those kind of sublease rates increasing, especially in Sydney, and, you know, you're seeing that in Melbourne as well, that organisations are making decisions now about the future of the way that they work. Mm. And this drive to flexibility and remote working is going to be part of the future. I mean, how does the bank think about this with those sorts of staff views? So we've, you know, we are in the process of now shifting, we've shifted our people to large new workplaces in, in South Everly, for instance, is a good example. Oh, yes. Now um, we're going to put that up for listeners. That is a fabulous looking space. I must say, I looked at that online. Thank you. And we spent a lot of time in designing and thinking about that workspace, really focused on the future of work. And so when we were designing that, the core principles was about radical mobility a huge uplift in terms of collaboration and the rise of the workplace experience. And for us, shifting to quality workplaces that suit the future of work, that enable our people to work flexibly, to work collaboratively, to work innovatively, that for us is the future of working. And and I think what you are going to start seeing is this shift of organizations, especially the large organizations, you know, shifting to quality workplaces. And potentially this is what that sublease market and that the vacancies that we're seeing in the city, we might see organizations shift from outer regions into the city to shift into those quality workplaces. Yeah, ironically, I'd, I'd been reading about speculation that would go the other way, that it, there could be a, a bit of a growth, even a boom in this hub and spoke model, Phil, where in fact there's a demand for quality spaces on the edge of cities so that people didn't have to do that huge long commute. That's right. There certainly have been some interesting conversations we've been having with organizations that are trying to tap into survey results from staff saying that people have really been enjoying the the lack of a commute. You know, the commute from the bedroom to the kitchen or or to the study uh, has been exceptional. And so we are certainly starting to hear that organizations are looking at trying to to figure out whether a decentralized model where there's less of a concentration of space in cities and potentially more spaces that are that are closer to home so that instead of having to work at home or work from an office, you can work near home, whether that might be a solution. But again, I think the point that Jennifer made is absolutely spot on. I think spaces now have to work harder because more than ever, and this is the same in shops, people are focusing more on the experience that they get when they arrive in a space. And so the key focus has really been on that as a metric. Yes, look, this is, uh, just let me tell listeners that uh, I'm delighted to have Phil Windus and Jennifer Saiz with us, and they both work in the corporate real estate advising and planning industries, I suppose you could put it like that, and uh, Jennifer's with the Commonwealth Bank, and Phil is a partner at Deloitte's, and we're talking about the CBDs, the office work of the future that we may see. Um Except that, you know, work at the same time as people are thinking about it sort of, I suppose, slightly transactionally, who's coming back to work when, there's been the question of whether 
work is to do with our identity as well, isn't it, Jennifer? And that the idea that people are going to enjoy being separated from that meaning that comes from work, which comes from being together, is going to become an even more of an issue. I don't even know whether people have thought it through themselves yet. It's all so fresh. What do your surveys show about that? Yeah, I think you highlight a good point. And when we talk to our people in terms of why do they want to come into work, it's because they want to connect. They want to connect with their team. They want to connect with, you know, other people in the office. And, you know, we're designing workspaces now to ensure that that connection now is facilitated. And so you'll see, like, for instance, in South Everly, where, you know, the majority of our workspace now has been handed over to social spaces and connection. And so I think you will probably see this rise of what we're now referring to as hybrid working, where people are going to choose to work from home a couple days a week and choose to come in the office a couple of days a week. And what that does is it gives people balance, balance in terms of minimizing the commute, focusing on research or thinking work at home, but then choosing to come into the office in order to connect, to be creative, to innovate. Well, I suppose that needs to be true because otherwise you've wasted a lot of money there in that beautiful site, haven't you? I mean, this is what is also at stake, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, and for us, you know, our future is based on on leading in digital and leading in digital customer experiences. And the only way to do that is to innovate. And really, innovation in isolation just can't happen. And so for us, it's about bringing together people in these spaces to be able to create those experiences. Yeah, I should explain to listeners that uh, South Everly, where we're talking about, we're old railway yards. Uh, it was very, very industrial and, shall we say, somewhat run down. It's just near Redfern, just beyond the sort of central city and it's being repurposed. So you, these innovation centres that we've heard such yes. a lot about, you think they're yep. still going to operate, do you, Jennifer? I mean, we do. And there's been, you know, a rise of these innovation districts globally. And it's really been this opportunity to attract digital talent and knowledge workers in close proximity to the cities, which is where, you know, the creative class and your digital savvy employees are clustering from a location perspective. Mm. And so for us, it's a good way and an easier way to capture and have access to that kind of talent. Phil, I have to ask about that empty space that you've been describing. Will it sit empty? Will somebody else come into it? Or I mean, there have been calls for it to be uh, converted to affordable accommodation for city workers in health or the police force to save them a big commute. Now, can you see that on the horizon? Look, look, I love to think that uh, that there could be some further innovation in terms of, of adaptive reuse of some of these spaces. So I, I think the there is a key hurdle, though, to overcome in that office buildings have really been designed quite differently to, let's say, apartment buildings. You know, offices are usually designed to cram people in. And the floors on office buildings have certainly gotten larger over the years. And unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily align to the characteristics of, you know, say, a good high-rise apartment building. So I'd love to think that there could be some opportunities to repurpose. But um, I certainly think there's going to be some challenges and headwind. And specifically, you explained to our producer, Anne Arnold, that uh, there mightn't be enough light in the middle. You've got these sort of big floor plates of these towers, huge, actually, and that in the middle, it, it can be quite dark, which I'd never thought of before. That's right. Yeah. So again, how the space might be, let's say, sort of subdivided to actually be able to be used in a different way could present challenges. Look, finally, do you think offices will look 
very different in the coming years. And I'm going to ask a related question. Can we have a, a major recovery without a CBD recovery? Because that's some people claim. Now, how are you thinking through those dilemmas, Jennifer? So, I mean, I think that the importance of workplace isn't diminished because of this. I think that for, you know, businesses, it becomes even more important because people potentially are not going to be there every day. And so when they come into the workplace, it becomes really a tool of attraction. It is a visible representation of the organization, of the values and the purpose. And so the fact that workplaces now become a point of connection and social connection makes them more important. And so I don't want to be negative in terms of the future of office because it will continue to be incredibly important for organizations. What does become important is the workplace experience that organizations are providing for their people and the quality of the workplace and the amenity that it offers is going to be important. And so thinking through the ground floor plane, ensuring that you've got the right retail mix underneath, that the workplaces are of a high quality and that support, you know, the type of attraction and the collaboration that organizations want and the sustainability are just going to become more important. And so there will be a bit of shift in terms of the quality of workplaces, but it's not the death of workplaces. And Phil, how do you see it? Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, and I think, I guess, I sort of see, I guess, the, the success of the economy as being mutually exclusive to the success of CBDs. I think if I look at really two overarching factors at play here that have been accelerated by COVID-19, corporate costs are increasingly under scrutiny uh, in a world of shrinking margins, but also the best talent wants flexibility and, and as Jennifer highlighted, purpose. And I think those two are actually really well aligned to prompt the reimagination and transformation of office space. Again, I don't think that we're necessarily going to see empty offices and uh, dust collecting on the streets of the cities, but I do certainly see people using space in, in a much different way altogether. Very interesting. Look, thank you. This is the first, I'm sure, of several discussions we'll have about this over the next 18 months or so. Jennifer Saez and Phil Windus, thank you for your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank and uh, Jennifer is uh, from the Commonwealth Bank, uh, where she's Executive General Manager of Group Property and Security. Phil Windus, a partner at Deloitte. And thank you. Lots of thoughts coming in from people in terms of how they are working. So um, keep it coming. But uh, we're going to turn our attention next to some new thinking about the way in which China's history is presented to us. Well, this week has been all about the US, but China certainly hasn't been sitting quietly. The former China correspondent Richard McGregor tweeted the other day, China's about to wipe out with the stroke of a pen Australia's biggest export markets for wine, lobster and a few other commodities against WTO rules and a bilateral FTA, free trade agreement. Seems like it should be a bigger deal and not just in Australia. The truth is China's actions continue to confound us and often divide us on questions as to whether we're overreacting to China or how we should best maintain a relationship. How do we imagine something like that? But my next guest on Saturday Extra is asking a different question. 
how well do we really know China? And specifically, Bill Hayton suggests China's nationalism and push for sovereignty, because he suggests the modern nation-state of China is not as unified and does not have the historical depth that we might have thought. Bill Hayton has written a book called The Invention of China. He's an associate fellow with the Chatham House Asia-Pacific Program, also a journalist with BBC World News, and uh, we've welcomed him before to talk about his book on Vietnam. Hello, Bill. Hello. Hi. Good morning. How are you? Uh, Very well, thank you. Um, So tell us, what is it that you, if you had to sort of summarise what you're really um, trying to distill for people to take forward and dwell upon (laughs) that's not fully appreciated about China? Go and read the book. Go and read the book. (laughs) No, no. I wanted to do a lovely little (laughs) tease so they'll go and read your book. Yeah. Um, it's, I'm not trying, the book is called The Invention of China, but I'm not saying that China just suddenly, you know, sprang into existence fully formed 100 years ago. But what I'm saying is the way we think about China, the way that China presents itself to us, went through a rapid change about 100 years ago. And all the things that we think of when we think of China as a single place with a single culture, speaking a single language, you know, where kind of, uh, you know, which all claims allegiance to 5,000 years of history, all of these ideas didn't really exist before the turn of the 19th, 20th century. And it was the nationalist movements uh, that gave us the revolution in China in, in 1911, 1912. They were the people that created these ideas. And they did so because they modelled them on European ideas of what a nation and a state and its history should be. Now, where did you start thinking about this? What got you into this area? Well, after I was a reporter in Vietnam and wrote a book about that, I then wrote a book about the South China Sea. And the more I looked into the history of the South China Sea and the disputes there, um, the more I realised that people, when it came to making claims on these disputed islands uh, in the early 20th century. They, they were literally making things up. Um, I mean, if you go back and look at a couple of the, the really important Chinese maps that were drawn in the 1930s, uh, they were copies of British maps. And the people who'd copied them had mistakenly, for example, drawn islands in places where there were no islands. Um, and I think I think, well, you know, <laughs> if they didn't know about those sort of details, uh, and then you start to look in other things in other borders in other parts of the country, and then it's about history and things. And you realize that this was such a febrile time in the uh, early 20th century with so many things going on and the country dividing and then being invaded and attacked. And there's a lot of passion and a lot of politics going on. And and people were just, you know, more or less grabbing bits of information and sticking it together into a story and saying, you know, here's my version of the truth. Um, and that just became accepted and, and, and rolled on. Yeah. So in effect, you've because well, I suppose we tend to think the sort of Mother Russia, uh, you know, which is inviolable, um, and we certainly see Putin invoking that, and sort of almost the Middle Kingdom uh, of China. Uh, so, and you're saying yes, but the peripheries were far more fluid than we have grasped. Is that it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, for one thing, I mean, uh, you know, Tibet and uh, Xinjiang and Mongolia, Manchuria, uh, Manchuria, you know, the, the, the outer bits of, of, of present day China. I mean, they were only 
incorporated you know within the Qing empire you know after uh, you know the in the 17th and 18th centuries and in fact i would go further to say that actually the the, the chinese empire that existed before the revolution in 1912 wasn't really a chinese empire in the way that we think of it because the the people who ran it were actually manchu they came from what's now called manchuria in the northeast which is outside the great wall of china they invaded Ming China in 1644, um, and so in effect, China proper, if you like, that kind of thing that we think of as China with you know growing rice and and all those bits of Chinese culture, became in effect a colony of a Manchurian Empire, which then went on to add Mongolia and Xinjiang and Tibet to it. So you had these five different parts of what you might call an Inner Asian Empire, and then when the Chinese nationalists come along in the late 19th century, early 20th century. They turn this empire inside out and they say this will no longer, in effect, be a Manchu empire. It will be Chinese. But we're not going to just you know, take the Chinese bit. We're going to have all the other bits. Uh, you know, we're going to have a claim on Tibet and Xinjiang and Mongolia, Manchuria, and claim that it's all Chinese. And I think it's in those decisions that you can see some of the problems that China faces today or the, or the region faces, you know, the situation in Tibet and, and Xinjiang. Mm. Um, and in other places where you've, China has tried or Chinese governments have tried to kind of impose a Chinese culture on places that were not originally Chinese. We'll come back to the Qing state specifically because it's, it's so interesting. But the notion of China's 5,000-year-old history as a unified state, as a civilization state, I think it's referred to, is a very important part of China's identity and I suppose the way it's discussed worldwide. How and when do you say we see that evoked and what's it based on? Well, there clearly were people living in what's now called China you know, 5,000 years ago and, and many thousands of years before that. Um, but the idea that there was a single culture um, that uh, existed over the whole country, I mean, it is just nonsense. Uh, you know, you had different cultures around the coast. You had cultures along the, the, the ancient the, the river valleys, the Yellow River um, and the Yangtze. You had highland cultures, you know, who were quite different, you know, spoke different languages. Um, what you have in you know kind of five thousand years ago is the the start of one particular you know version of this sort of civilization which uses characters and so forth. Um, but the reason why uh, now people talk about specifically five thousand years of history is because they try to backdate the origin of Chinese culture to this figure, the Yellow Emperor, a, a mythical figure who you know has a mythical birthday, which is sort of more or less 5,000 years ago. Um, and he is became to be seen as the sort of the ancestor of, uh, of the Han race. But if I tell you that nobody ever talked of a Han race before 1900, uh, there was literally one revolutionary guy called Zhang Binglin who invented the idea of a Han race and then developed the idea that all of the Han people were the descendants of this, this yellow emperor. You can kind of see where I'm, you know, why mm. I talk about the invention of these ideas. Because he, was, he, he chose that idea because he wanted to create a boundary between the, the Han people, the, the ruled people, and the, and the Manchu people to, in order to overthrow the Manchu. And so he came up with the idea that the Han were a race um, which had never been used before. 
and you know used it as a as a way of mobilizing the revolutionaries against the the Manchu against the Qing empire yes i must say and i went to my uh, China a few a few years back now with my family and um, you would ask questions of otherwise very good guides and say so now where do various minorities live there are no minorities in china repeat there are no minorities in china <laughs> now, it was amazing it was like a, a automatic pilot you know so this is really what you're saying that it, it that way that filters down to the present day is really quite significant yeah i mean there was a kind of curious bit halfway through this development so you you, you right from the very beginning you've had a, a a sort of argument within chinese nationalism as to whether there is one chinese nation or whether in fact to recognize these minorities as, as separate peoples and under the influence of the the soviet union uh, in the 30s and 40s the communists actually uh, had the idea that these these groups, these minorities were, were national minorities and then they classified them and they said, okay, well, there are now 56 national minorities in, in the People's Republic, including the Han and the, you know, the Tibets and, Tibetans and so forth. Um, but, and then that kind of, uh, kind of continued for a while and you had autonomy for a while. For example, Xi Jinping's father became quite a big uh, advocate of uh, greater autonomy for the Tibetans. But now we see Xi Jinping himself basically saying autonomy for the minorities and separate identities is a threat to the unity of the country. And we've just got to go and impose uh, a Chinese so it's identity. A, it's a real imperialist attitude, isn't it? I think so. I mean, there was a good book uh, you know, a few years ago, you know, called you know the, the, the Qing Colonial Enterprise. You know that it was about you know taking uh, a, a metropolitan culture and imposing it, or, or managing it and ruling these minorities. And now we're sort of seeing another phase, I guess, which is trying to impose a, a single identity on these people. And I suppose this, well, does this question, this anxiety by what you're you're suggesting, um, bear thinking about? in the way China's forging connections with diaspora communities and other countries, including our own? I think it is. I think this question of, uh, of race is quite important. Now, I, mean, I think we, we've got to kind of, you know, put a big flag up here and saying, you know, there is no connection between being of Chinese heritage and being, uh, you know, an agent or whatever of the People's Republic of China. Mm. Um, you know, there, there are, you know, both our countries have, you know, long experience of discrimination against minorities. And, you know, we need to make a clear distinction that we're not talking about a general problem. But I think there is an issue with the way that the People's Republic of China now is trying to use these race, ideas of race and a common heritage and the Yellow Emperor and, 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 and Han heritage to reach out to overseas Chinese uh, communities who are thoroughly integrated, um, you know, happy, settled members of societies with loyalties, you know, to, the, to their host countries, um, but actually trying to stir things up a bit. And I think this, this is a worry because you're starting to see it, for example, uh, in Malaysia a few years ago, you had the Chinese ambassador, you know, you know going down to Chinatown and, and saying, you know, we stand for the, you know, for the rights of the, you know, the Chinese minority in Malaysia. And that, you know, caused a huge upset there. Um, and I talk about some other examples in the book, you know, the Chinese consul in, in San Francisco giving a talk to uh, uh, children who'd been from China who'd been adopted by American parents and basically and, and telling them literally, you know, I can tell by the color of your, you know, your hair and the shape of your eyes that you, you know, you belong to China. You know, these are 
pretty racist ideas. Well, they are, but I suppose, you know, you also think of how appallingly badly Chinese people were treated in Singapore. The Singapore story, the takeover by the Japanese is truly ghastly. Mm -hmm. And in other parts, um, you know, Hong Kong and so on, when China was going through its century of humiliation, when it had no power, and they certainly couldn't defend. So, Mm. So, I mean, all of these memories are powerful, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, and the way we remember them and the lessons we draw from them are, you know, are, are, are very politically significant, you know, even now. Mm-hmm. Now, the let's go back to the Qing Empire. This uh, sort of this grand nation state, mind you, it was always considered to be a deteriorating part of China. It was sort of often seen as really uh, oh, obsolete and 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 cracking up for a long time, wasn't it? But you think that it really bears re- reconsideration. It wasn't. It's not what it seems. Well, I mean, you have this empire which you know really probably reached its peak at the end of the 18th century, um, and you know one of the richest you know, empires in the world with you know huge territorial extent, um, but it really starts to you know kind of decay uh, you know into the beginning of the 19th century. So, I mean, the reason why you know when the British show up in the 1840s, you know, and the first Opium War, you know, the, the country the, the empire is unable to resist is because it's had so many crises. Decrepit um, was the it, word I was decrepit, searching for. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the sick man of Asia and, and, yeah. and start that whole fight all over again. But which was that, you know, which was, a, you know, it was, which was a sort of term coined, you know, because of the, ter- the Ottoman Empire, which is almost an equivalent, mm. was seen as the sick man of Europe. And so this, this, this phrase kind of came, you know, came around. Um, but it's interesting to, to maybe compile what happened to the Ottoman Empire, the, uh, the former Turkish Empire, which after the First World War, all the outlying bits of the Ottoman Empire, you know, the Arab became the Arab states, became independent, and Turkey, you know, became this sort of core of, of Turkish culture. Um, whereas in China, that didn't happen, and so the the outer bits, you know, were kept with the the um, the old empire as it became the republic. Mm. Uh, look, I mean, all nations are guilty of myth making, aren't they? I suppose in the name of nationalism. If you look at the borderlands of Germany, that's a massive issue, um, uh, and all. Mostly wars start in borderlands because it is so contested. Should we necessarily expect China to be any different? No, I don't think so. And I I think, you know, that, uh, you know, Germany, uh, Korea, Britain, you know, Turkey, we've all been through a process of of, of myth making and, you know, selective remembering and forgetting. I mean, you know, Britain with Brexit at the moment, you know, all these sort of myths about whether we were, you know, how Scotland came to join the union and, you know, and obviously, you know, centuries of problems with Ireland and our relationship with Europe. All of these things, you know, we, we kind of remember and forget different things to suit the needs of the time. But what I'm trying to say is that China was no different from that. And there's, I think there's been a bit of a sense that somehow China, you know, was special and, you know, and more ancient and more real uh, than our other countries. And what I'm trying to say is, you know, China, the Chinese nationalist movement went through the same debates, you know, that German nationalists and Italian nationalists and Japanese nationalists did, and they remembered and they forgot certain things in order to make a nice smooth story of how we came from our ancient roots and you know, to, to today's situation. Very interesting, and I think we're going to be talking about something to do r- related precisely to this in our in our next story. Bill Hayton, thank you very much indeed. It's nice to have you back. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Bill Hayton's book, H-A-Y-T-O-N, The Invention of China, is published by Yale University Press. Well, look, get your pens and notebooks ready because it's time now for the November issue of The Pick. Mm -hmm. 
Well, welcome to The Pick this November, our regular monthly segment where we uh, solicit recommendations for things to read, watch or listen to, which broadly fit our brief of international affairs. And let me welcome my two guests for today. Linda Javen is an author of 11 books to date, both fiction and non-fiction. She has a particular interest in China, and she's currently working on another two books, A Short History of China and a novel set in Beijing in the 1980s. So, Linda, hello there. Hello, Geraldine. And also with us is Sebastian Strangio, the, an author and journalist and Southeast Asian editor at The Diplomat. His most recent work was In the Dragon's Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century, and we spoke to him about that. Sebastian, good to have you here with us. Thanks. It's nice to be here. At the end uh, of of an extraordinary week, I I must say, Linda, just very quickly, (laughs) um, because one of your picks is the current affairs podcast, Sinica, which is China-related but completely contemporary. I want to ask you why this podcast stands out for you, but how it would have or has covered this election of its um, great rival, the United States. Well, it's very interesting. And actually, Sebastian has been on the podcast recently. But what it does is it's, it's, it's very varied in what it tackles. So it could tackle something like martial arts films or a Chinese woman journalist in the US being trolled by Chinese patriots um, and so on. But it actually, the most recent one was a China policy for the progressive left. The two hosts, Kaiser Kuo and Jeremy Goldcorn, who bring a tremendous amount of personality and warmth to what could be, I suppose, for some people, a slightly esoteric or... I don't know, even dull subject, if, if that's not your thing, but mm. they really make it fun. And Kaiser Kuo, I've known him since the 1980s, 90s, when he was <laughs> in China's first heavy metal band. And he still has the hair. Well done, <laughs> so, Kaiser. Well, well done, Kaiser. And he always has a kind of a teasing opening for Jeremy, who's also a longtime China person. And they, they just have a very warm way and a very lively way of uh, talking to guests. And it's often uh, reflecting on issues that will, you know, relate to things like the election. So um, they're based in Beijing, are they? No, no, they're based in the U.S. They oh, they're spend- based in the U.S., yes. I see. Yes, so they can talk about anything. <laughs> oh, so they can talk about Chinese politics. Oh, yes, and they do. And they talk about it in every which way and they have all kinds of guests on. And so it's always very, very interesting. You also nominated Chinese, Classical Chinese Literature, an <laughs> anthology of translation, volume one. And you're about to persuade me that it's unmissable. So go for it, please. <laughs> Well, this anthology of translations, which was edited by John Minford, one of the world's greatest living translators, and Joseph S. M. Lau, um, has over 1,100 pages. So it is a brick. Um, But I swear you could read this every day. You could pick something and read it and find the the quotient of joy in your life increases (laughs) by, by some small amount. There's such beautiful poetry, essays, uh, quirky things, um, stories, selections from the I Ching, and so on. It's just magnificent. And it, and it draws on some of the greatest translators of Chinese literature from the 19th century to today. 
all different styles of translation. Sometimes you'll be treated to a couple different translations of a poem. Mm. And it's, it's just great. And I can't wait till they produce the second one. But I think that's some ways off. It's a big project. But I'm really looking forward to it. I want two bricks on my bookshelf. So this, this, dive into. this volume one covers what periods then? It covers uh, classical Chinese literature from antiquity, so from, you know, really the shell bone writing, the, the oracle bone writing of the shamans of several thousand years BC, all the way to the Tang dynasty, so up to the 10th century. And the Tang dynasty, you pointed out to us, was really a time of fantastic creativity and oh and, and massive Amazing. cultural exchange with the rest of the world. Is that also driving your delight in some of this? Oh, totally. I love the Tang. It was a time when um, the Chinese elite in the capital of Chang'an, which is today's Xi'an, they would play Persian polo and they dressed in Turkish costumes for fun and they cooked with Indian spices and they danced to Central Asian music. It was a time when China's influence was incredibly broad so that Persian art with the miniatures and so on uh, were influenced by certain Chinese painting techniques. Kyoto was modeled on Chang'an, uh, the Japanese kimono and the Korean national dress both derive evol- have evolved from Tang Dynasty women's dress. Also, I have to say, Tang Dynasty women had the best makeup ever. <laughs> <laughs> Did they? Right. They, they could paint their lips in little bows, you know, not using the whole lip. They would paint little floral designs over their lips. They also stuck little stickers all over their faces with Buddhist symbols or little clouds or tigers. And, and is this informing your book, The Short History of China, which I think is a brick in its own right, isn't it? No, it's actually the shortest history of China. Oh, shortest <laughs> history of China, yes. I see. It's only 60,000 words, so it's not actually that long. And But I did manage to get in Tang Dynasty makeup, and I do get in a lot of women's history, which I'm not equating with makeup. <laughs> but I must say, I do include a bit of makeup and fashion. I think it'll be the only shortest history of China where you read that Kublai Khan's, two of Kublai Khan's greatest political advisors were his mother and his wife. Oh, lovely. <laughs> and, and is that out now or is that about to come out? Well, it's uh, due out next year and we're just fixing the date. Oh, something to really look forward to because getting that <laughs> sweep of Chinese history is, is hard to do. You know, it's really uh, tough, actually. It, I've tried. Exactly. And I start from the the creation of the universe um, oh. <laughs> where where a giant, a horned giant jumps out of or cracks out of an egg cr- and pushes apart yin and yang to create heaven and earth. And I take it all the way up to COVID. Right. Now, <laughs> just uh, before I, yes, just a bit, just <laughs> before we move to Sebastian, you are also a fan, thinking of podcasts, of the Little Red podcast too, uh, as course. well as um, Sinica, S-I-N-I-C-A. I mean, could people listen to the both of them? Um, are they very different? Yes, they are. Uh, I mean, I think Seneca has a slightly broader range. I think Little Red Podcast tends to focus in on politics and economics, but not not solely. But I think with Seneca, they also have a podcast network. So they have New Voices, which is about women, and they have um, Middle Earth, which is about culture, and they have uh, one about economy, and they have one about Africa in China and so on. So it's actually a, a little empire in itself mm. and quite 
broad. I love the Little Red podcast with Louisa Lim and Graham Smith as well. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it is a real con- contribution. I agree to you, with you. Now, um, Sebastian, to your picks now, which are equally intriguing, you've been caught up in the Balkan trilogy, the Olivia Manning's books set in World War II. One admiring review of these books in the New York Times called them a highly readable mix of literature and soap opera. And I have to tell you, I have just gone and bought the box set of the TV series with Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson, which I watched years ago. So, I mean... Is that is it that little Quinella that gets you in? You know, I actually haven't seen the BBC oh, it's uh, adaptation, although I, you know, I do think it's available on YouTube, so I do plan to check it out. But no, I, I've I've sort of known about this book for for years, and it you know all these moments of serendipity one has in secondhand bookshops, you just come across a copy of something that's sort of been on the fringes of your awareness for many years, and then you know you just decide that you're going to pick it up, and that that's the next thing you're going to read. And so I just last night finished the second novel of three. And of course, the Balkan trilogies, there's also a Levant trilogy, which continues the story for another three novels. And, t- so, and what's the essential story? <clears throat> it centers on the relationship between a British couple um, who are living in Bucharest at the time that the Second World War begins. You sort of see there... In Romania. In Romania, yeah. So you see you know, their relationship, fairly shaky relationship, unfold against this backdrop of gathering war. And of course, you know, Romania was not affected by the war until a couple of years in. And so you sort of see the, the, you know, this, this very colorful cast of characters adapting themselves to this increasingly tense um, situation. And um, the, the novels were based on Manning's own experience living in Romania during the war. Because so her husband was a diplomat, wasn't he? I believe so, yes. Mm. And and so she, she's able to sort of create this wonderful evocation of, you know, life in Romania and in Romanian society on the verge of the, the country being engulfed by the war. And uh, yeah, I think that review gets it really right. You know, there is this sort of domestic drama, but the, you know, the backdrop against this, you know, incredibly foreboding backdrop. You know, it's not, it's not all doom and gloom either. It's actually quite a witty book. You know, she does have uh, quite a gift for comic writing. And so, that, you know, that kind of comes out as well. And it's, you know, it's, it's a very curious mix. It's a book that I found, you know, very difficult to put down. Uh, yes, Anthony Burgess called it among the best British writing about World War II. And Clive James was apparently quite a fan too. It came out in the 60s, but it, I think it's, a, it's subtle and, as you say, funny. And then that, that sense of dread as the mm. German army is marching through. It just, again, it gives a bit of context to what we're living through now. Now, you're all, you are also bringing two podcasts to the table. The first is Backlisted, which is billed as giving new life to old books. How does it work? Well, so it, it's, it's a podcast based around sort of excavating these old, semi-forgotten classics and bringing on guests to pull them apart and discuss them. And, and also just sort of the, the conversations are very wide ranging. So they very often extend quite far beyond the actual topic of the book. It's very loosely structured, but I found it to be a wonderful way to sort of, you know, delve into novels that I've already read. Um, although the many of the novels they featured I've never heard of. And me. it's accessible, is it? Like, presumably there are two British commentators who are probably polymaths in their own regard. I mean, you know, can you understand it? Yes, yeah, very much so. And they always select guests who have a particular angle on you know, the novel that they're discussing. Um, like it's very which, eclectic. W- w- yeah, tell us a couple of them. The other day I listened to one that was on um, The Return of the King, the third book in the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy, which kind of bucked their trend of having 
obscure works on mm. there, but they managed to bring some very interesting perspectives to a book that I read many, many years ago as a, as a teenager. They also did a very interesting podcast on Malcolm Lowry's Under the Volcano, um, that sort of elusive elliptical novel about a British consul sort of pickling himself in mezcal and in Mexico. And I've got a long list of books that I've just ordered based on recommendations from um, from, from the backlisted. podcast. How lovely. Yeah. And, and then your, another one of yours is my favourite, which is Talking Politics, the David Runciman and Helen Thompson one, which quite a few people, I think I've completely evangelised about it. My goodness, it was a terrific this week at the aftermath of the um, election. Yeah, it's probably among the most incisive politics podcasts that yep. I that I know of. And the fact that they're based in the UK gives them a really interesting perspective on what's happening in the US. I, agree. I mean, they're, I, I think they sort of avoid, you know, that trap of parochialism that um, a lot of domestic commentators can fall into. And they, they're very good at connecting events in the United States and in Europe to broader international trends, you know, to do with technology, shifting demographics. But they never mention Australia. I, I'm, I'm quietly thinking of emailing them and saying, <laughs> actually, That's there, true, there yes. is a complete other realm, you know, down here, which is, provides some quite interesting politics, but, you know, you know, I may not get around to it. Before we go, because there is uh, a very important election in Burma this week, you want to talk about another book, The Hidden History of Burma, because you say its author, Tan Myunt U, feels that outsiders have overlooked much of the real story of Burma. What have we missed? Well, I think there was a tendency, I mean, at least Tan argues in this book, that uh, to sort of put all of Myanmar's problems down to sort of the lack of democracy. Um, you know, the country was under military rule for many years, and there was a tendency to sort of assume that with the coming of democracy would come the end of the conflicts that have, have torn the country apart since its independence and prosperity for the country's people. And he argues that in, in many ways it's been the opposite, that, that elections have intersected with troubled ethnic relations and deeply entrenched racial and, and religious identities and have blown oxygen onto the embers of, of these sorts of tensions. And so the paradox of Myanmar is that since the country's remarkable political opening at the, in the early part of this decade, it has seen some of the worst violence and conflict in living memory. And so, you know, he argues the country needs to really take a very close look at its nationalist mythologies and to, to sort of try and address these, these mm. questions of identity. And also to take economics seriously, equitable economic development, which is which mm. has really not been part of the conversation for a lot of Western governments and indeed for the Myanmar government itself. Well, look, thank you both very much indeed. They're very interesting suggestions and I've made thank notes. Thank you. And uh, thank you, Linda, and I look very, very much look forward to the emergence of a, sh a short history of China. <laughs> Thanks so much, Geraldine. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks, Bye. Geraldine. Bye-bye. And Linda Javen uh, is uh, Southeast uh, editor at the. Uh, uh, she is an author, and Sebastian is the Southeast uh, uh, Asia editor at the Diplomat. Uh, Sebastian Strangio. All the picks are up on the Saturday Extra website, and we didn't quite get time to talk to about Linda's pick for television, The Queen's Gambit. Now I notice this is getting a lot of praise. It's a Netflix series based on a novel by Walter Tevis, and it's loosely based on the story of how Bobby Fischer took on Boris 
Boris Spassky in that chess tournament. Do you remember it? The twist is that the chess master here is a girl because Walter Tevis apparently wanted to make a point about the male domination of chess. And you do not have to be a chess player to watch, I'm told. Uh, And I also want to mention something that somebody uh, pointed out to me. Um, Fintan O'Toole, whom I'm totally dedicated to as a simply wonderful Irish writer and commentator, he's got a new one out in the New York Review of Books, just out, Democracy's Afterlife, uh, Trump, the GOP and the Rise of Zombie Politics. And that, you know, I've just been glancing at it. It's just breathtaking writing and so perceptive, I think. And while we're at it, something I've meant to do for weeks now, when we covered the uh, 75th anniversary of World War II, actually, and uh, the impact on Australia, um, that a couple of uh, listeners wrote in to talk about a lovely sounding book, I haven't read it, but called Nella's Last War, um, the day-to-day diaries of a housewife, um, it, written in 1949. You might like to seek that out. Another one, The Ministry of Morale, uh, Ian McLean, um, about, in fact, how you talk about things, thinking of the... Um, public health crisis, how you do discuss morale and uh, the management of, of public anxiety and mobilisation. So have a look. That's an Allen and Unwin publication. Again, no doubt you'll flood me with some fantastic uh, thoughts as well. Now, I just do have time, I'm delighted to say. Um, in fact, we've, what's the book about Romania? Oh, um, the Balkan Trilogy. I'm just looking at the text line. The Balkan Trilogy by Olivia Manning. Um, and that's all part of that. And as I said, you can go out and buy yourself, if you feel like binging, uh, the complete series that was with Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson. It's a fantastic, fantastic series. Um Another, Heather says, does does Linda's book, does the book she recommended about classical Tang poetry, does it have a good number of female Chinese poets? Yes, it does, Heather. It most definitely does. And a perceptive remark by one of our texters, talking about China and other countries' myth-making, surely the first example for an Australian program would be Australia itself, with its myth-making around the existence of Indigenous peoples' existence and early wars, etc., which is a very interesting thought. Um, Somebody else about... uh, office, the office, nature of office work. Geraldine, many of my clients want to go to the office for peace and quiet away from their noisy children. Is your guest assuming that employees don't have children? (laughs) Yes, often the office is a vastly easier place to be than the household. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Doog. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.